welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical, theoretical, and educational contexts. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. And actually, now I am working with grad students. Um, nice. I have three graphic novels out. Thank you. In addition to self-published works, I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD candidate in the University of Florida's English program. I also have a master's in English from UF. Um, my research focuses on trans embodiment and experience in comics and zines, um, and to a lesser degree, museum studies. And I also make mostly self-published comics. Yeah. Um, so. You say mostly because we just... Uh... Well, we can get into the SPX recap. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, here's our introduction. Hi, everyone. It's been a while. It's been a minute. Yeah. We've been summer. It's just, I feel like summer educators always taking a summer. Um, I've I've learned to never apologize for our absences. I, I'd rather the people who are <laughs> listening feel joy in our presence. Hello, hello. I have a new microphone mm-hmm. that makes me want to <laughs> do more NPR voice than I've done in the past. I know. You sound very <laughs> Ira Glass right now. I've been appreciating. Oh, good. It's very soothing. <laughs> so our idea for this episode is we are going to spend a little bit of time on a topic with Remus. And then we're going to spend some time talking about Small Press Expo, SBX, in Bethesda, Maryland. We were both just there um, last weekend? No. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's only been a week. (laughs) It's a long week. Um, When they hear this, it'll be a few more weeks since uh, SBX. Yeah. We're actually recording this episode a little earlier than we usually... Usually we record towards, like, the second to last or last weekend of the month, but... um... I'm traveling again next weekend. And I think you're traveling the weekend after that. I mean, <laughs> so. yeah. Well, it's um, it's a uh, mice. So actually, we're we're going to be talking about SPX. Um, but technically, mice will have also just been wrapped. But it hasn't happened yes yet, um, for us. So, <laughs> um, so what is the topic that you're going to tell us a bit about today, Remus? Yeah. So, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about open access archives. Um. I think archives is a topic we're going to come back to again because there's some more like specific things I'm interested in and I don't really we want to have some time to talk about SBX so I'm not going to get like super in the nitty-gritty but I wanted to sort of think I'm sort of thinking about this as like a follow-up to our our, uh, earlier episode about like research and how to do research Um, because something I see a lot and also felt myself when I was younger especially from um, younger uh, queer people is you know like not knowing where to find queer history right like not feeling connected to queer history and there's actually like so many openly available digital resources that i think just aren't super well known um that Mm. i thought it would be nice to sort of talk a little bit about like what is archive what is archive what are archives um what is our an archive is maybe a more abstract question but like uh what are archives and like what kinds of archives there are and also how to like find material that you might be interested in and i have um in the in the show notes we'll put a few specific the uh open access uh digital archives that i think are really cool um that i recommend people just sort of spend some time going through because i think the, the joy of archival research to me is like 
um, when you when you're doing um, it's different from other types of research. Like it's a different way of thinking about research because it's less like you can come into an archive and be like, I have a sense of what I'm looking for. Like, of course you can like, uh, you know, people will specifically seek out certain papers or they'll like know that something is in a particular archive and they'll try to find that or whatever. But like a lot of it is you're just kind of going through material and what's there will reveal itself to you instead of like the other way around where you like already have something in mind and are <laughs> seeking it out. Right. Mm. Um, I mean, you're really showing the difference between, uh, like, part of the uh, AI discussion, right, is you need to be presenting um, an idea that you've already formulated, but the idea of so much of research is um, discovery. (laughs) Discovery, exactly. And I think it it can be a challenge to get your head around, because I think, um, at least in the context of, like, academia like university level academia like when we give assignments you know you were like when I was a writing teacher right when I gave an assignment you know um it's you kind of are starting from like you 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 ask students often to have a thesis first right um so they sort of don't get to do that discovery phase as much as if you're coming in without you don't have a thesis you don't have you don't know what you're going to write about yet you're just there to like see what's there and then pull something Mm. out of what you find um, which was challenging for me, like when I studied, like I took a seminar on grassroots archives, um, but that was uh, done by my dissertation chair um, that was really good. But that was like a struggle for me, definitely, was to sort of like invert <laughs> my way of thinking um, about what I was looking for, right? Because you're not like keyword searching in a database. You're not like looking for, you know, you again, you can like have a sort of idea of what you're looking for, but you really don't know until you get in there. And then sometimes you find stuff that can really radically just change what you're interested in. I thought what I would do first is just sort of um, define and like explain the different types of archives. Um, because I think that's like not necessarily something that everyone knows or whatever. Um, and even if you do know it, maybe you'll appreciate the uh refresher um but an archive is a repository basically of material that is uh by virtue of being in that archive considered historically important right worth preserving um i think the popular perception of archives or at least my popular perception of archives like before i looked into it more and like learned about them is like um institutional like they're often attached to a university or an institutional um body like that right um and and not always because of that open to the public although that's not strictly true even with the institutional ones what's the difference between a uh archive and a library an archive a library the material is circulating Mm. right you go there and you check stuff out and you take it with you um and also libraries often have more recent contemporary stuff right like they're focused on like acquiring newer materials um archives the material does not leave the archive um the goal of the archive is preservation of that material Mm. right so you you want to keep it safe so what's a museum versus an archive yeah so museums are public facing um again like you can uh, ar- there are lots of archives that are like open to the public in the sense that like you can make an appointment and go there 
Um, but it's not this, the material isn't just like laid out nicely for you to look at, right? So museums take mm. historical material and present them to the public and contextualize them for the public. Archives, again, the, the primary goal of the archive is preservation. Um, so the material is stored and can be accessed in some cases, um, or like in the case of like digital archives, you know, that's a different thing, but like the material is the goal of the archive is to protect the material and keep it safe for long-term use. So like, that's why um, often you need to make an appointment to go to an archive so that the archivist can like pull the material for you and prepare it and make sure that it's in good condition and that it's safe for you to handle it. And there's like rules about like handling material, especially if you're working with like physical, because, um, you know, we're talking about things like, you know, there's like books and journals, but there's also like ephemera, pamphlets, clothing, magazines, newspapers, photographs, like material that falls apart, right? Disintegrates over time. Um, and the goal of the archive is to sort of like mm. protect it and keep it from disintegrating over time um, as much as is possible. So like I said, there's a lot of the, the sort of like primary or not primary. I don't want to like generalize, but I think like a popular understanding of archive is those like big institutional archives that are like connected to a university, right? Um, and those often are only accessible to people who have university credentials. So like either you're at that university or like you're a researcher from a different university um, and you sort of like write in or like, hey, here's the situation, like here's my project, here's what I need, can I make an appointment? You know, that kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. much less common for an archive to be like, just walk in because again, they sort of have to prepare the material and like, you know, uh, it's not as easy. Um, but these are for like in person, not digital. Um, there are also uh, a lot of what I'm going to be sort of sharing are grassroots archives. So grassroots archives are archives that were created by community members, um, not affiliated with an institution, um, and are funded through the community or through the individuals that run the archive. Um, and again, these can have like varying levels of access but generally are more open to the public because they're grassroots you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um an example of like a really well-known grassroots archive is the lesbian herstory archive in new york which is a really wonderful archive of like lesbian history in new york city that started in like um let let me just pull up the founder's name before i forget have you gotten a chance to see it in person no i'm i'm kind of loosely planning an arch- archive-related tr- trip in spring through New York and oh. the East Coast, because I kind of was... Is this your first, or is this your last PhD year, or is it your... I am in the PhD program until I finish the dissertation. I'm not I'm not on the funding clock anymore, and I'm not technically enrolled at UF anymore, so there's not... Okay. I need to finish before, like... There's a certain amount of time where if I don't finish it, they would have to, like, petition the school to, like, let me do it. And we're just trying to avoid that. But it's, like, five years. Um, so I have plenty of time. Do you want to use five years? Or... <laughs> no, God. I want to be done. But, you know. Um, anyway, uh, the Lesbian History Archive was founded in 1974. Um, it's in Park Slope um, in Brooklyn now. Um And it originally began, like, from the 70s into the 90s, it was just in one of the founder's apartments. Like, they just stored all of this material in the founder's apartment for 20 years until they got, got, like, a brownstone space for it. Um, So, like, 
that's an example of a grassroots uh, archive, right? It's just like a group of people were like, this material is important. No one else is protecting it. We need to protect it. We're going to make it happen. <laughs> um, love the love the lesbian history archive. And uh, those are, uh, but those are, the lesbian history archive is mostly an in-person archive, right? Like you go there physically in person, you make an appointment. Um, you're allowed to like, they, you ask for like what you're kind of interested in or whatever, and they bring it to you and you like go through it, right? Um, digital archives are a little different mm-hmm. in that the material is digitized, which means scanned most of the, basically all the time, right? Um, it especially, you know, like there's like born digital material, which means that like the publisher created it digitally. And so it's like a digital file from inception. But when you're talking about archival material, you're usually talking about material that's a little older and most, I mean, it's not always the case now because we're in like 20 years ago, there were like born digital materials, mm-hmm. but for the most part, uh, a lot of archival material is physical material. that, And so when you digitize it, you're scanning it and preserving it via these digital files. Right. And uh, there's different types of preservation, digital preservation, is honestly like really interesting and if we like got super deep into it it would be like an hour long um because digital files actually do degrade over time um i think a lot of people don't realize this um but you like you have to update and maintain digital files or they will start to go bad also so you can in fact lose digital material it is not forever as people often think you know that's saying like oh if it's on the internet it's there forever it's really not <laughs> when when people say that it's more like yeah the memory of it it's like reputation based like the memory of it it's not like <laughs> it, they're basically warning you not to post yeah a exactly picture of yourself but, an inappropriate picture but of it, yourself they're not saying you will always be able to find <laughs> every movie that's ever been made which is we're learning exactly. is absolutely i not think true i mean all. i don't know i think when i was a teenager people very much did think like oh the digital file will exist forever because it's not paper it can't fall apart but um you know now we kind of do you know how that digital degradation takes place? I'm I haven't learned I've only learned like a little bit about it. I'd have to do a bit more research. I do think it's interesting. My understanding just sort of based on at least part of it is that like systems update over time. Um and so like Oh, and they won't be able to access it anymore. Yeah, and like even like things like files, like file types are created things and they get updated there's like different types of jpeg for instance right so like a jpeg from 1995 is not going to be in the same condition as a jpeg that was created today well like um like i I was thinking about i listened to a podcast with a music producer and she was talking about how music software updates and if you have a digital like if it's an old version of say garage band or something sometimes she can't open that file anymore yeah (laughs) we said that even um this was before my time at jstor but jstor art store which is part of jstor used to have a, a a software called oiv um that was like on it stood for like online image viewer i think and it was like a presentation software that art history teachers mm. could use and it got sunset in 2019 i want to say um because they made a better like they made a version of it on the actual like website itself and like 
OIV was just like because it is software, like the comp- it, it couldn't be updated to keep up with computer updates, right? So like this computer systems couldn't run it very effectively anymore, right? Um, right. And it happens all the time. I feel like every single person who's ever owned a laptop or a phone would know. Right. What we're exactly. Some, about. Sometimes like really cool <laughs> programs just can't be maintained because it's like you have to keep up with the computer manufacturers updating, 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 you know, it's like a whole thing. Browser yeah. updates even. And so OIV got sunset because we weren't able to sort of maintain it. And we still get people being like, how do I convert my OIV files? <laughs> you know, like, because <laughs> uh, you can't open them with anything but OIV. Oh, my gosh. So it's, it happens, right? But I'm, I think there's like other more interesting technical reasons for digital degrade that I would love to learn more about. So maybe that's something we can come back to. But cool. the other kind of archive I wanted to briefly talk about, because I think they're neat, are dark archives. Um, So... All archives are sort of like the goal is preservation, less than like uh, public access, you know. But most of the time, with like regular archives, you can get to the material, right? It is meant to be used for research. So, like, you make an appointment or whatever, um, or it's digitized and you're able to access it safely. Um, And the goal is not that like no one can look at this or touch this again. It's just like we need to make sure that it's being protected. But there's a type of archive called a dark archive, and dark archives are meant to be inaccessible. So the only goal of the dark archive is to protect that information for future. It's not to let people access it. And there's a type, a specific type of dark archive called a cold storage archive, which is basically like a physical location where you put the stuff so that it is protected, but you cannot get to it again. <laughs> and it just lives there forever <laughs> um, or until it gets pulled mm, out. Like the seed? Like oh like the seed archive, yeah like the seed project up in yeah the, in the permafrost. I think that would be an example absolutely, because um, <laughs> right because like you know we're not gonna go get you can't make an appointment to get seed right the goal is for those to be like protected forever. If you if you don't know what we're talking about, there's um seeds. I think it's in Longyearbyen, uh, uh Finland, um where it's uh it's permafrost so the earth doesn't not isn't frozen so the earth is permanently frozen and it's underground and it's where we put every seed from every plant that's ever existed on earth that's super cool um you know to preserve it for the future yeah so i think that's cool and um jstor actually has a a dark archive called portico that I <laughs> that's a cool Portico is cool. I really like Portico. There's basically like in terms of digital dark archives, my understanding is there's basically three, and it's like Portico locks and clocks, um, which are acronyms, and I don't remember what they stand for, unfortunately. Um, but Portico exists. Most of what's in Portico is journals that are no longer pu- journals or uh, books or things of that nature that are no longer published. So like things that were published and then. One reason or another, the publisher goes under, doesn't exist anymore. They they decide to stop doing it, and they put it in Portico to preserve it. So even though the publisher no longer exists, Portico is the custodian of this material. Um, and publishers put stuff in Portico in the event that they do cease to make it. And then because it's a dark archive, that just basically means like if you can't just like go to Portico and be like, show me what you have, right? Like you would need to... Um, have access to it it isn't like a pure dark archive because you can actually access material in portico um, in certain cases so for instance 
uh, we, Portico is used for what's called post-cancellation access, which is basically like journal is getting published, university was paying for journal, had subscription to journal. Journal ceases to exist. Company goes under. There is no way to get the material anywhere else. Portico has it. So because you had paid the publisher for it, and the only way to get it now is through Portico, you can access that content through Portico. Oh, okay. um, so it's protected. It's still there. It hasn't disappeared, but it's protected in this archive. And it's not like it's more for like the librarian can go and pull a copy if it's needed. It's not like anyone can go on campus and like go to Portico and look it up, basically. Can I can I ask you to define something? Yeah, go for it. So, uh, this is something that we've talked about a lot, an academic journal. Oh, yeah. Um, can you just define what an academic journal sure. is? Sure. Because it's not always like a physical published Yeah. Thing, right? So a journal is like, I mean, the difference between like a journal and a magazine is pretty slim. It's just like objects. So like, you know, a journal is a container of articles, sometimes usually like related to the same subject, sometimes the same theme. So there'll be like a journal of engineering or mechanical engineering, and then it publishes articles about mechanical engineering, right? And what makes a journal academic is honestly pretty flimsy. <laughs> um, it's like peer-reviewed, I sometimes right? Not all, not all, acad- not all academic journals are peer-reviewed, but yeah. Um, yeah. So if it's a journal that is like published through a university press, so like through an institution that is academic in nature, is sort of a academic journal um peer review like kathy was saying uh which i think we've talked about before but basically is like use when an article is peer reviewed it means that uh people who were in the experts in that field looked at it and like reviewed it and gave editing feedback to the author um it's and peer review is actually it'd be fun to do an episode on like peer review at some point because it's actually a very recently developed system um which is why it gets like fuzzy because like peer review only started really being a thing in like the 70s and obviously there's like a lot of academic stuff that was published before then Mm. um and and it's not like a perfect system and yeah and there's like a lot of issues with peer review which is why a lot of academic journals don't do peer review now because like there's oh interest there's reasons why peer review is useful and then there's ways that it isn't um you know like it can be subject to bias like all these sorts of things so yeah um it's a little it's complicated to pin down exactly what makes a journal academic besides the journal saying that it's academic um but generally <laughs> it's uh focused on academic topics so it's not like focused on uh it's not like op-ed right it's not like op-ed it's like there's generally sort of a uh a, a, I don't want to say like objectivity because I think there are for instance a lot of academic writing in the humanities that deliberately no. sort of pushes against the idea of objectivity as like a requirement but like the goal of academic writing generally speaking is like your audience is also academics and you're trying to like contribute to the academic record as versus like Mm, yeah. a-, a magazine that's writing about like current events or pop culture or whatever where it might not be yeah. so i i just wanted to clarify because when you talked about an institution having access to it journals are also very expensive yes. they can be like really hundreds expensive. of dollars and so uh a, a university will pay for access to it which oftentimes is a pdf yeah in my feelings it's not necessarily they're buying Correct. they do sometimes print physical copies yeah you can a, get a, a lot journal a lot of journals are physical but like on and this is sort of an interesting piece of history about jstor right uh jstor stands for journal storage 
<laughs> that's where the name comes from. Cute. And it started out of um, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. We have like that's why we have like a, such a close relationship with them. And it was a solution to the fact that like you know prior to sort of the advent of these larger digital archives and digitization of this material, the libraries had to have physical copies of the journals. So like they would just have stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of yeah, these journals. So much. <laughs> and it takes up a lot of space physically, right? Yes, it does. And but you don't want to get rid of them because it's important academic knowledge. So they started digitizing the journals and storing them digitally online. And thus JSTOR was born. Um, and now there's other, I mean, there's like EBSCO, Wiley, Sci-Hub, there's like all these databases that all do this, right? That like have this, and like a lot of publishers also digitize their own material and have it hosted on their own website so that the libraries don't have to have physical stacks of journals and they can use that space for other things, right? Yeah. So it really is a storage problem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that's what the archive is for, is to free up storage space for the library, where they don't necessarily need to hold on to, like, 500 copies of a journal dating back to 1890, but, like, those copies from 1890 should still be preserved, because we might we want to have that record, right? <laughs> like, yeah. mm -hmm. But, um, anyway, so that's sort of, like, just an overview of archives, and like I said, I, I wanted to shout out, uh, my focus here is, like, on queer archives specifically, because, like I said, I have sort of seen online from like a, a, a younger queer people and this was something i felt myself um in my early 20s is like you know like not being sure how to like connect with queer history if you weren't someone who like came from a community that had sort of stronger historical roots right like where i grew up in south florida was like a very gay friendly city and there was like a lot of gay people there but it wasn't like it still wasn't easy to like find that history you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really like have access to it. And, and again, I was like in a very liberal environment. It wasn't like it was forbidden from me. It just like wasn't really around. And like now we're in a climate where like a lot of material is actively being suppressed in schools and things like that. So I feel like it's especially important to know where to go to like look for material. Right. So I wanted to call out my favorite archive. And again, we're going to post links to all of these, but I'm just going to name a couple um there's a website houstonlgbthistory.org which is one of my absolute favorite grassroots uh totally online archives it's like a, a one it's like a one man project he primarily has uh texas related materials but he also has a fantastic page of um national early national gay pubs so early national gay publications dating back to the 50, the 60s um, mm. a little earlier, some some fifties also, um, but like full PDFs of early gay magazines, gay books, muscle mags, which were like uh, <laughs> kind of what they sound like. They were like magazines that had photos of buff, semi-nude men under the pretense that it was about like bodybuilding and musculature appreciation and not like being used for homosexual activities because this was like I mean. I feel like men's health is still yeah <laughs> right, but but like these muscle. It's interesting, like the history of these muscle mags because it's like it was an era where you weren't allowed to ship mm -hmm. gay material through the post, right? We've talked about that in the censorship episode. There was like laws around like what you could mail. Um, that was considered obscene. So the muscle mags were 
you know, primarily eye candy for gay men, but the premise of them was that it was like, oh, like the Greek way of life where it's, you know, fitness and mental uh, acumen and like, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it was just like, you know, pictures of hot naked men (laughs) that you could look at. Cool. Um, so I love the muscle mags. You know, they have like Gay Magazine, which was uh, Canada's first gay tabloid. They have the Mattachine newsletter um, from 1969, and the Mattachine is uh, was a, a the New York Mattachine. I might not be saying that wrong, but um, was a like an early gay rights uh, group in New York around the era of Stonewall. Um, so just like lots of really fantastic material on this page. And the guy that runs it is like, so nice. I like wrote (laughs) about, uh, there's a great book in this archive, um, called, uh, modern fairy tales, autobiography of a camp, uh, by someone using the pet, the pen name, Peter B. Lovely that came out in 1964. So the same year as Susan Sontag's notes on camp. Um, but a couple months Ooh. before, if I recall, or after, I don't know, like really close to it coming out. And I wrote my, I wrote a seminar paper about this book. And so I had like emailed him and was like, where did you get this? Do you know if there's anything else by this guy? And he was like, so happy to answer my questions. He was like, oh, so nice. Cool. I love him. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, if you're into like Texas specifically, um, they also have a, he also has like some black LGBT content, Latinx LGBT content. Great website. Um, there's also like... Some people might be familiar with the Digital Transgender Archive, which is like a large uh, database of trans historical materials that is completely open. You can just search it. Uh, it, it came from um, uh, KJ Rawson and Nick Matt, who are both uh, really cool trans scholars. Um, and there's a lot of like really wonderful ephemera. Like I, I like ephemera personally, which is things like brochures flyers for parties zines like little one-off things Mm -hmm. um is sort of my bread and butter um i love to like sort of find that uh and digital transgender archive has like such fun amazing stuff in it related to that uh and the last one i'm gonna sort of name there's a bunch but like the last one i'm gonna sort of name here for time's sake is actually on jstor if you'll allow me um (laughs) (laughs) i was just thinking how uh fun it is that you went from your PhD, which, uh, where you talked a lot about teaching and stuff. And now you are work at JSTOR and yeah. now that's like what you're, what you're doing your episodes on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I like it. JSTOR actually, I think, um, I think this has become more common knowledge, but anyone can make an account on JSTOR for free. You don't have to be affiliated with an institution to use JSTOR. And if you have a free account on JSTOR, you can read up to a hundred articles a month for free online. Um, you can't like download them is the qualifier there. Although there is a bunch of like open access stuff you can also download, but that's also, I'm just talking about um, academic articles, right? Um mm. We also have a lot of primary source archival material now. Um, so, like, it's interesting because it's, like, we have, like, the archive of, like, journals, which was, like, JSTOR's, like, main thing for a long time, hence journal storage. But now we also have basically this thing where institutions can put their special collections online. Um, so, like, they can, cool. like, digitize and upload and preserve their special collections. And a lot of them are free to the public. Cool. 
any of them like if you like log on and like just like go to it's under browse collections all of anything you can see is free to the public because the only two options for these collections is free to the public or private to the institution and the private to the institution ones won't show up <laughs> like if you're not part of that institution oh yeah yeah so you're not like in danger of running into stuff you can't access it'll like anything you run into through these is like open and free um and there's a lot of really cool stuff in there um that i really like but we also have um these collections through reveal digital um and reveal digital was a open it was a uh archival database that like specifically curated like open access primary source collections and now they're all up on jstor and we have a really cool one on called independent voices which is, is composed of alternate like titles from the alternate press and so the alternate press is like there's the mainstream press uh you know that make like magazines and newsletters and you know things that are like institutionally mm-hmm. funded or like big corporations and then alternate press are uh micro press basically right like so things that were created out of the mainstream newsletters and uh magazines and things of that nature and there is um there's how many is this one two three four five six seven eight. there's nine different categories for independent voices including a dedicated lgbt collection um that has 25 publications from i want to say the earliest is the 1970s through now um or like sort of around that like 70s 80s um a lot of really cool fun titles in there and like Mm. a lot like almost the entire thing right being fully digitized and uh up online that you can read um that's awesome and then we're also working on i don't think this one is is this one open yet Uh, don't share trade secrets (laughs) it's not it's up on the website so the way that reveal digital works is they put these collections together and then they get funding from university libraries and once they hit a certain like funding threshold it flips to open access um so they're still getting funding for this one but they've been working on an hiv aids in the arts collection that i'm really excited about oh wonderful um, that is uh focusing on the intellectual and social history of hiv and aids really wonderful content very excited for this one to hit its funding goal and flip to open access i think it'll be really exciting um, once it's available so there's just like and like I said, that's like three. I have like a list of like, <laughs> there's also like QZAP, which is the Queer Zine Archive Project that just has like a bunch of zines up on their website you can go through. Um, there's a bunch of zine archives. Um, there's all sorts of things. Um, the New York Public Library has a bunch of material actually about HIV and AIDS digitized. I think I've talked about that on here before. Like, um, so I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make, I'm, we're going to have a list in the show notes and I'm yeah, just totally. like saying like, if you're someone who is like interested and like wants to go, I like really encourage you just to like go through, grab something at random and like read it. Cause I think it's like genuinely so affirming <laughs> to like read material from like gay people and trans people living like 50 years ago, you know what I mean? Or like older, younger, whatever. Um, it also, I think, puts a lot of stuff in perspective because, like, my favorite thing is, like, reading, like, the magazines from the gay press in the, like, 60s and 70s and being like, oh, we're having the exact same arguments now that we were having in the 60s. Cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's very fun. Um, and it really does, I think, like, 
it, it really makes you feel not isolated in a way that I think, mm-hmm. like, especially now can feel very isolating because we are dealing with such a, like, repressive pushback against, like, trans rights and queer rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I have told you all where to look. Now I am asking you to go do the looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Remus. That was so awesome. Yeah, of course. Really appreciate it. I want to mention the first, uh, the research episode that you were talking about is mm-hmm. episode 40. And so uh, that's April 1st, 2022. And then our episode 44 is the AIDS and activism and comics episode. So on both those episodes, you talk about yeah archives. Uh, and so, yeah, if you're looking for more information, those are good episodes to go to. So, um, so we wanted to spend the second half of this podcast sort of talking about Small Press Expo 2023. It took place in September 9th and 10th in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, what did we want to, what did we want to talk about? This is the first time, how about, when was the last time you showed at a comic convention? Because I've been doing it for a couple of years now. Yeah, this is my first show since uh, Comic Arts LA 2019. Okay, um, yeah, which was my last convention before the pandemic as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I, I know there was some shows kind of coming back last year, but I, I wanted to be extra cautious, and I didn't. Also, I don't think I could have afforded to go to any of them, honestly. <laughs> so this is... <laughs> This was sort of my grand reentrance, uh, and I was I was tabling with my partner who had never been to SPX before, so that was also really exciting for them. Um, how how was the show for you? It was great. Um, I didn't really I I I I, th- I thought it was going to be pretty rowdy, honestly, because I knew that like more people were going to be there this year than last year, because there was one last year. Um, uh, but I I remember people saying that it was like, were you at the one last year? I was. Yeah, I've I did I pretty much came back to all conventions last year. Yeah, was it quieter? in 2022 to your experience um i sold more this year Mm. um it wasn't like quiet i actually i feel like 2022 shows were overall rowdier to be honest and it's because i think there was a lot more we're finally coming back together energy sure so Mm -hmm. like we were finally like i i was i i sold a lot uh, in 2022, um, I think overall con sales have gone down a bit more for me this year, actually. Um, okay. Just like a tiny bit. Like I've, I've been doing pretty good. Um, thank you, by the way, everyone listening. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, but like 2022, I was selling so much. I had lines for hours at some conventions, like wow. people lining up to buy from me. It was like really flattering. Like I was like really like I I knew it was a special moment because I knew it was like not going to be my reality for the rest of my career. Um, But I just like I had at Mice 2022 or 2021 Mice, I had a line for four solid hours. (laughs) People waiting. (laughs) Well, I feel like you are a local darling for my uh, much help. I really, I actually think, I actually think, and this is something that I actually find interesting and new to the landscape. Most people who see me at conventions is just on the merit of my art. Not, oh, wow. I would say most people just sort of find me there. Like, I That's wouldn't so cool. say there is not a huge overlap of people who know me who are like follow me on twitter or follow me on instagram and come try come to see me 
I would say it's mostly people who go to the show and just find my work there. Interesting. I wonder if it's because it's been a few years, so there's like people who are new to shows now too, like not necessarily all There's the same definitely crowd. a new generation of showgoers. Yeah. I don't know how you saw it, but we like I feel it's so funny how like I'm 34, which is mm-hmm. old in comic book world and it yeah. is not old <laughs> in, anywhere else. In, like anywhere else. <laughs> But there's definitely a new generation of college kids yeah, definitely. or young adults who are like discovering my work for the first time. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely noticed the generational shift. Um, I, I felt like very profound for me because it had, this was like four years since my last show. And I mean, I wasn't like fresh faced baby in 2019. By that point I had been doing shows for like five years. Um, but I still was very, you know, I was in my, mid 20s and i was still i think feeling more like new or whatever Mm -hmm. and i mean again i'm not old i'm 30 it's that's not old by any standard but like uh you're not like in that genre of like emerging new talent per se (laughs) right like i'm not like there's like and i think it's true for a lot of art when you're fresh out of college and you don't have a ton of bills to pay (laughs) and yeah um yeah you have just a lot more energy and a lot more uh, ability and time to spend on art projects. And um, so I think a lot of people get known in their 20s. And I think, and that's something that I've been actually looking at in my 30s now is trying to think about longevity in the arts and how to um, maintain a creative practice when a lot of things are kind of asking me to settle down and (laughs) not travel every weekend for a convention and uh focus more on uh day jobs that pay my bills um but that's not something i'm gonna give into (laughs) no i mean i think they're so worth it but it definitely is i mean i don't really understand how i managed because i i would do like a show a month when i was younger um and i don't know how i pulled that off because i've I'm still so tired. <laughs> like, I mean, I feel like SPX was definitely more exhausting than uh, other conventions. Like, I feel like there's plenty. SPX has a lot more. Like, it goes pretty late at night. It goes till 7 p.m. Yeah. That's that's a long, a long day. day. Um, and uh, so it goes late. And then, like, it goes through two meals. <laughs> yeah. It goes through yeah. lunch and dinner. <laughs> And that's not necessarily, like, I'm not, like, complaining. It's more, like, an interesting recognition of, like, I mean, I've always been disabled. It's just, like, oh, I've definitely, like, I'm older now also. So, like, I feel it a lot worse now than I did when I was, like, in my 20s. Yeah. um, Or early 20s in particular. And I think especially, like, the pandemic really did a number on me. And my understanding is most people sort of psychically and physically, even if you didn't. Like, I never, I haven't had COVID yet, knock on wood, but. Me too. Um, it's still, you know, like it's, it's, like it's, it's I feel like it's almost psychically when, when you're talking yeah. about what COVID, um, not necessarily having had the virus, but like also the other cultural impacts it has. Yeah. I, I think socially, right? Like yeah, I absolutely. am an extrovert. I am a definition of an extrovert. I love being around people. I love talking to people. It's how I get my energy. It's like very important to my life to speak to people and be around people and I was 
very tired from talking to people. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've always been someone who, like, needs to take a lot of breaks to recharge socially. I don't know if I'm, like, fully introverted. Uh, I, do I like mean, life is people. a dichotomy, of course. I know, yeah, obviously. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I'm like, I'm one of those weirdos that's like not on the binary. Um, but, <laughs> whoa, uh, whoa. Um, but I definitely like, I had to take a break. Like, I, I'm glad I was tabling with someone because, like, I had to like kind of excuse myself for most of Sunday because I was so overstimulated that I was like, oh, I can't talk to a hundred more people today. That's just not gonna. It's so many for people me. talking to you. It's so many people. And it's like a specific kind of, um, because obviously it's not like you're selling per se, but you are like you are working. You're right? performing, you're like, or like you're performing. Pre you're presenting yourself. You're presenting yeah, your work. You're, you're being like, friendly, you know. Yeah, you know, and it's exciting and it's like genuine. Like I love yeah. when people talk talk to me about my work. No one great. here, no one's listening right now. I'm sure there's plenty of people who have met us at conventions. I am extremely grateful, and I yes. would never ever imply that you oh, absolutely you tire me out <laughs> <laughs> it's not you individually no. it's sort of the the mass of 200 people yeah and i'm not um and i'm not ever trying to i'm not being fake when we're talking yeah, to absolutely it's just you know i when i say performance i more mean you know it's 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 emotional labor i mean that's sort yeah. of the definition of it right smiling <laughs> right like you can't i'm not gonna Gen it's genuine because like i don't want to be an asshole to some someone yeah. who's like trying to buy something for me but like i am selling you a product so there is like a little bit of a like <laughs> you do have to kind of be like warm and effusive yeah like you are like hi let's have a genuine connection i am so grateful for everything that we did oh you want to you want to buy this now let's deal with money now let me think of like a math calculation let's let's do that sort of back and forth um yeah it's like okay and then on cool, to the next great. person <laughs> right especially <laughs> like a hundred times <laughs> it's fun it is it is really fun and i was it is it is like uh i was worried that it would be hard but it's like riding a bike a little bit i feel like once people started coming to the table i was like oh yeah i remember how to do this and <laughs> i think if anything i think um it really shows me how much social media doesn't reflect the reality yeah. of your art like I think people really see and experience your art when when they're coming up in person. Um, mm -hmm. It's really a different thing than um, posting something on social media and seeing the likes and the comments. It's really, um, I mean, it, it, the the relationship that you build with community and with strangers um, by being an artist and sharing artwork is like profound and beautiful, you know. And um, I don't want to, like, say that going back to fully in-person, like, I don't want to sound um, like not being COVID conscious, like being COVID conscious right. is extremely important. Um, we all masked all weekend. Um, uh, I didn't eat dinner uh, indoors at all. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there is something really profound and beautiful that happens when you're sharing art in person that... Uh, feels different <laughs> yeah it's like tricky because i i definitely don't want to imply that um you can't have like a profound experience with someone online because i think at this point of course you can up, right like at this point it's pretty clear that's not the case but there is something different about the show space and actually it's funny because like I, my dissertation 
is very much about the show space is sort of like the comic show space is sort of like the vehicle I'm using. Like I'm focusing on like I had no idea that that was part of your dissertation. Yeah, I'm I'm specifically looking at like trans comic networks through like shows. Um be- oh. because I thought about like, you know, you could do everything like bookstores and also like online and stuff like that, but that's like so many different things and also I think like what happens in the show space is fundamentally different from like what happens through like online networks they're both great it's just like they do different things they perform differently and people are part of both of them but it's sort of like different work in different spaces yeah and and i think i think part of what i'm saying of why being in person is really valuable is also just the way that our algorithm and our social media has gone and the way the internet has like gone from the wild west which is i guess not an appropriate analogy but like has gone from people having their own places and doing really interesting things and sharing them to like being so like it's harder to share yeah um on social media yeah so. it's it you know i i some i think we've maybe talked about this before but sometimes i see stuff on like instagram or whatever like here's how to manipulate the algorithm to get more followers for your art and i'm like i understand why this exists but it makes me so sad <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah, I I would never fault anyone for doing that, but that's not the purpose of art. Yeah, it's, you know. <laughs> so I get you know. it. We all got bills to pay and stuff, but it makes me sad that that's what we have to do because of the situation that we have found ourselves. in. Yeah, and I think I, I just constantly uh, I I lose like people are like yeah. YouTubers or like Instagram people, and it's because they're doing it like they're making content specifically for that platform, yeah. and they're like sort of. Um, wrapping their creative energy around yeah. that cr- that algorithm, which yeah. would will always be pulled out from underneath you. You know, yeah, I mean <laughs> like that is how it works. I couldn't even do freelance because, like, I realized I didn't want to make stuff. I didn't want to have to anticipate what I thought an art director would. Which isn't to say that there's like a problem with like. I think some people are naturally just like really good at that. I'm not, and I didn't want to have to like change what i was doing to get freelance jobs and i didn't want to have to like chip Mm. away at it until i i didn't want to have to like struggle until like i didn't want to have to economically struggle i didn't want to like tie what i was doing to my economic position in the way that i think i would have had to in order to like find people that were willing to like pay me to do the weird thing i want to do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah i mean no that's exactly what you just gotta keep doing what you're doing yeah whether or not um it pleases others <laughs> exactly um but i also wanted to do we want to shout out anything cool that we got at spx oh gosh everything that i got is still in a box <laughs> i okay. like to, I, I like put it all immediately into a box and i haven't looked at it because it was it's really tricky uh, spx um being at the beginning of september is just such a cruel joke to educators <laughs> right yeah <laughs> like i i had all these lesson plans i needed to work on and they i have not touched the my spx boxes at all but yeah. you can sure well i didn't get very much um i didn't really walk around actually um as much as i maybe wanted to just because i knew i couldn't like I mean, frankly, the two of us barely saw each other. Right. And we were we were next to each other, basically. <laughs> we, were, we were like two yards away from each other. And like we desperately had one hour on Sunday night <laughs> together. It's, it's rough. Um, so I didn't get a lot. But um, I wanted to shout out the stuff I did get, which uh, starting with, I mean, I got a lot of my friend stuff, of course. 
Yeah, I got your comics. Yeah, and I got yours, but I picked up Emma Jane's new comic from Silver Sprocket, a lesbian or LSBN, um, which is a like a, a mecca, like a graphic novella about, and it's like a trans lesbian comic about big robots which what isn't to love there and i'm sorry if i'm doing a terrible job summarizing i love it i mean saying that emma jane made a trans lesbian comic is That's all you sort mean. of obvious well for people who might not be familiar with emma's work <laughs> um i also got um uh there's a there's a comic i actually read this comic like the first part of this comic online um and was and then my I was uh, Rosemary had a copy. My my friend Rosemary Valero O'Connell, who was like next to me, um, had it, she didn't make it, but her friend did, and so she had like copies. And I was like, oh, I have to get one. And it's um, a terrified child played by Jeremy Strong by Ezra David uh, Mattis. Um, that is, it's actually like the first part of what's going to be a much bigger graphic novel. Um, but it's these gorgeous like colored pencil drawings, and it's like a a sort of uh, Ezra calls it an anti-memoir comic, but it's like a uh, the premise is that like Ezra has cast the actor Jeremy Strong to play him as a child, and like is having Jeremy Strong like reenacts uh, the mem his memories, <laughs> um, and it's like so fascinating, um, mm. really wonderful, like very meta textual in a way that is like really makes my brain itch in a good way, you know. Um, Highly, highly recommend. I'm pretty sure Ezra has it also up on his Tumblr. Um, if you want to like just, but I think I think I think we I met Ezra um at uh a Toptic in Minneapolis last year. Ooh, yeah, I think it sounds familiar. They do a lot of succession art, right? Yeah, well, hence Jeremy Strong. <laughs> I don't I don't know anything about succession. I just googled Jeremy Strong to confirm. Yeah, yeah, he plays Kendall, um, Kendall Roy. Uh, why, 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 I don't know anything about the succession. Why are you telling me the character's name? <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. He plays one of in, the boys I, in succession. I guess we're recording a podcast, so maybe that information was actually helpful to someone else who's listening. Okay, sorry, I forgot this was a public conversation that we're having. No, no, please. You're right. Foolish of me. Um, and then the last, the last one I wanted to shout out is I got Leo Fox's uh, "My Body and Spooling." Did you? Leo wasn't at their table when I stopped by. Did, did you meet them? Yeah, and they came by. Uh, funnily enough, because Ezra, they came by to like do a trade with Ezra <laughs> using oh, Rosemary as a mediator. So we were like, "Oh, hi, Leo!" <laughs> um, but it's a beautiful. It's so beautiful, honestly. Um, yeah, I got that one too. Yeah, and it, it was like in short box originally. Um, and it's about uh someone named Lucille who breaks up with their body, and <laughs> um mm. and just like honestly one of the like one of the most beautiful like comics I've seen. So and also was on also was on my I, list of like oh I definitely need this for my dissertation. So I just want to look it up. Uh, he uses he him pronouns. Thank you. So those those were the three I wanted to just like shout out because I, I mean I also got I got a bunch of like other little zines and stuff that I really love. Yeah, I got a bunch of stuff. I apologize uh, if I got your stuff and I did not talk That's, about it here. You know, <laughs> there was this is the first time I have done a convention, and I would walk around at tables and the ta like like so many tables would be like I would be like oh can I buy this from you, and they would be like 
thanks, Kathy. I know who you are. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh no, geez. I've known <laughs> the mortifying ordeal. I was just like trying to like, because like when you're trying to buy stuff, you, you're away from your table. And so when you're buying stuff, you're not only losing the money that yeah. you're buying stuff with, you're also losing money because you're not at the table. So you're yeah. double losing money. <laughs> So, like, whenever I'm trying to visiting tables, I, I am just like whirling through, and I'm like, I want this one, I want this, can I have this? And I just like hand people money really fast, and I run away. But so many people were like, I know who you are, and Please I was like, no, Oh, let me be anonymous. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just, uh, I'm sorry that I'm not a. Uh, because when someone says says that to me, I'm I want to honor it. Like I'm very flattered, mm-hmm. and I appreciate it. So I want to spend a little time chatting. Um, so hopefully, uh. If you talk to me at a convention, I hope I have spent lots of time with you and thank you so much for understanding. <laughs> uh, anything else about SPX? No, just thanks everyone. Um, I had great sales. Yeah, yeah thanks so Thank you. Yeah. I had a great time. I had great sales. Um, I missed doing that. So uh, it was a it was a really good first voyage back into the, the world of that sort of thing for sure. The first voyage back into the world. Wow, just <laughs> profound. Um, so I wanted to read. We got oh, so any conclusions or are we good on conclusions? Show good. That was my conclusion. All right. Show good. Um, so it's now time for letters to the editor, our regular segment where we either revisit past topics and add new research, and sometimes we actually read email that you've sent us, um, which is what we're gonna do today. Um, you can send us letters at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Um, so this is a longer one. This is from Wolfgang slash M. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. Kathy and Remus. This is a long one, so I apologize. But Drawing a Dialogue genuinely changed the path I was on in life. And it's been on my mind lately that I would really like to shoot you all an email letting you know this. Just prior to the pandemic, I had dropped out of art school after incredible burnout with animation and had absolutely no idea what I was going to do for the future. I was working fast food and considered reapplying to my school to pursue a degree in art education, but felt very aware that it wasn't my intention or passion to go into teaching in a public school, so I ended up frozen with this decision. My relationship with art was poor. I had a very limited view of what my options were. I was really struggling to find what I actually felt passionate about in the world. In March of 2020, with plenty of time shut inside, I listened to a lot of drawing and dialogue, and I began to approach artwork as less work and more playful exploration and experimentation. I didn't find that my technical skill was at a point that I was happy with. While I rekindled my relationship with creativity, your podcast opened new ideas for me to pursue. In that time, I realized that artwork is vitally important to my well-being, but becomes absolutely crushed when the pressure of livelihood is placed upon it, and in isolation, I found that I am actually a people person. Drawing a dialogue opened my mind to the potential of teaching and working with people outside of standard classroom settings, and made me much more aware of the pressure I was placing on formally formality in titles, as opposed to the actual work and community interactions I was having. I think I probably could have ended up in a library work eventually based on my interests, but your discussions about education and work and passion and community came together in that little stew of my brain and set off a spark. I've been working in my local library system since 2021 now, and I'm getting back to a bachelor's in history before I pursue an MLIS, and it astounds me how well my art and my connections with people and my excitement for learning and teaching all fit together. Even in the limited time I've been in this career, 
I've had the most incredible interactions. My experience reconnecting with art has come in handy with a few patrons seeking the same thing, and I've been in a position now to create a safe and welcoming environment for some of the queer kids in the area, as well as to educate non-queer co-workers in ways they can foster this sense of safety as well. I'm not necessarily teaching in a formal setting, but I get to foster curiosity and investigation and exploration and play in a way that I'd like to consider teaching. I definitely made decisions that led me here as well, but your podcast is forever in my mind and heart as the first place I really began to realize I wasn't stuck with the formal or the expected. You were both key players in my journey here, and I'm so incredibly grateful for that. Keep up the good work. It makes a difference in people's lives. Thank you. That is such an incredibly kind letter, and I'm really happy that you found uh, something that satisfies those different pieces of yourself. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for sending that. I think it really... Um, me and Remus record this podcast just because we enjoy mm-hmm. talking with each other, and we have curiosity about um, certain topics, and maybe we want to share career life. But you know, receiving that email last month, um, it was it was it really energized mm-hmm. us to pick back up the microphones, which I do think we always would. But again, just like you're saying, it was an inspiration. <laughs> so we really appreciate the email. Thank you so much. Yeah, should we just move into? Yeah, I think it's time to say goodbye. Um, so thank you. To Downhone Boys for the use of their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. Uh, Downtown Boys are about to go to Europe and do a European tour. Um, so if you happen to be in Europe, uh, look up the places that they're going and maybe you'll get to see them. Um, you, can, Your turn. <laughs> you can go over to drawingadialogue.com to view the citations for this podcast, which will be the list of open access archives that I want y'all to look at. Um, I don't know why I'm saying that. Like, yeah. I give you homework. I can't give you homework. I have no control over you. But, you know, <laughs> highly right. Um, and Drawing a Dialogue is, of course, hosted on Comic Art Ed, Kathy's wonderful comic arts education website. You can Thank email you. us uh, at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. We'd love to get your letters. I made I made a new Drawing a Dialogue uh, Blue Sky account. Oh. As, as Twitter continues to... Um, crash and burn um i made a drawing a dialogue dot b s k y dot social i believe um but if you look up drawing a dialogue um we're there now so i'm gonna post updates there and also we have an instagram i'll keep updating uh twitter but um i just wanted to get it make a new option for people yeah i probably i think i i don't do i have this my blue sky I'm going to be honest, I am not good at any of the new apps, and I am sort of moving away from them on the whole. Um, Oh, that's okay. So I'm actually going to say that instead of um, my my Twitter, as long as it exists, is still at Remus Maurice, which is R-E-M-U-S-M-A-U-R-I-C-E. But I actually would say if you, I would direct people to my, I started a newsletter. I haven't used it very much yet, but that's okay because it's a newsletter. It's not uh, Twitter. Uh, and it's just tinyletter.com <laughs> forward slash Remus Jackson. And I'm going to probably sort of use that 
more and more because uh, I don't have brain energy to work with 500 different Twitter clones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically what I do is I create a post yeah. and then I repost it to all the other things. I just sort of sit down and yeah, repost it. That, it, that makes times. sense. I, I don't like being on my I'm trying to not even be on Twitter as much anymore. I mean, that's a habit that's hard to break, but um, I certainly can't build a new habit. I'm not really on it. Yeah, I'm not really on it. I just sort of, I just mm-hmm. keep doing the things I do. And then I, when I want to let someone know that I did something, I just make a little post, but I don't really have conversations yeah, on it anymore. Sure. I do have a new camaraderie, which is a, a worker-owned, creator-owned uh, version of Patreon. Uh, it's called camaraderie.co slash Kathy G. John. If you find me anywhere, there, I'm sure there's links. Um, but that's a way of subscribing and you'll get my new webcomic. I launched a webcomic since the last time we talked called Charger County. It's, you can uh, find it at chargercounty.com. Um, it's just my, I just made a little website and I'm posting my little comic. Um, and it's my new graphic novel. It's going to be, I'm probably going to be updating yeah. it for the next couple of years. Um, it's my new graphic novel that I am making for Silver Sprocket. They were really cool. I just was like, can I just make my comic free for people? <laughs> and they were like, sure. But if you want um, emails every time I update, um, you can join the camaraderie. And you can join as low as $1. Um, but to um, get like the special tiers, I think it starts at 5 bucks. It's cool because it's I, they only take the only cut they take is like a very small, unlike the Patreon, which nice. takes like a which is really annoying. So I only do stuff if it feels really good to me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that, I no, hate that rules. making uh, money the, for corporations. <laughs> the new comic is so good, so like everyone definitely needs to go check it out and give you money for it. Honestly, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I just I I. You know, I I kind of have I've found like a a, a balance, a calmness mm-hmm. um, with sort of the state of everything. Where I'm just I'm just ke- I'm gonna keep making stuff. I'll always be making stuff. I'm just gonna keep making stuff, and you'll always be able to find me. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you've listened to this podcast as long as you have already. Um, True. You, you you all are real ones for sure. So uh, Remus, uh, what are you reading right now? Yeah, um, I actually just finished two books because I was reading them on the plane ride. Um, I just finished uh, uh, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. It's really wonderful. Um, she's a fantastic author. Um, and I also, but I, I, but I also just finished um, this really. I, I, I like to just go through Libby and like see what's available sometimes, and just like get something random and if i like it finish it and if i don't send it back kind of deal um and i stumbled into this book called um feed them silence uh by lee mandelo um and uh it's about this like lesbian scientist who is doing this research project where she like puts a chip in the brain of a wolf that allows her to like access what the wolf is seeing and feeling and it's really that sounds very you i mean that's why i picked it up but it's like also she's like in a failing marriage and like 
kind of sucks as a person, which I always love when people are willing to like write a character that sucks, um, yeah. and not try to like redeem them or anything. Um, and it ended up it ended up being like really kind of kind of fascinating, and it went in a direction I wasn't expecting. So, um, I I think it's I think it's an interesting read for sure. Um, it's uh, if you don't like animal animal injuries and death and stuff like that, you might not like it, but uh, it is really interesting and very much about, I think, like the ethics of like, like what is science and like uh, idealizing relationships and like um, projection and that kind of thing. So mm. um, very interesting, um, very weird, <laughs> weird little book. That I, enjoy. I looked it up. Uh, her last name is pronounced Ing. Ing. Okay. Celeste Ing. Little fires everywhere, mm-hmm. which is very different um totally <laughs> um really beautiful book also though highly recommend both um what have you been reading kathy um i just started a guest in the house mm-hmm. uh which is emily carroll's new graphic novel mm-hmm. um it's incredible i am savoring it so i'm not reading it quickly um but it is just fantastic she is in uh in another world yeah than the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> absolutely she really is a, a master of uh drawing and storytelling um the the gore and the viscera of the book is like so beautiful yeah it's so creepy i only just started it because i'm i am going trying to go slow but it's really fantastic. So if you didn't know Emily Carroll has a new graphic novel out, you really should pick it up. It was such a good creepy read, October read. You should do it. Nice. Um, and that's it. That's it. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for talking with us today, Remus. I and love, yes. I love the implications of the audience is there with you. Of course. <laughs> We're all here together. Um, and thank you audience uh for listening to drawing a dialogue um my name is kathy g johnson and i'm remus jack solidarity forever